Today is a day for remembrance. It's not a day for reveling in war. It's an opportunity for us to give thanks and to remember those who have died in bringing us peace and freedom. It's an opportunity also to remember those who continue to risk their lives so that we and other people throughout the world might enjoy peace and freedom. There was once a time when war was seen as glamorous and exciting, but no longer. There was a song in the First World War that the soldiers sang. It went like this. Pack up your troubles in your old, sorry, in your old kit bag. And what? Smile. 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 The horrors of the First World War meant that many of them were not smiling. But things have moved on since then. Advances in communications, advances in the technology of war have changed all of that for good. Now we can see the horrors of war at the flick of a switch. We can see live pictures of our troops fighting in Afghanistan. We see the convoy of hearses bringing back the bodies of those who have fallen. We can see the effects of war on the injured and on the bereaved, on those in the military and on civilians, not just in this country, but throughout the world. And as we see that pain, as we see the suffering and even experience it perhaps ourselves, our natural inclination is to revile it and to consider campaigning against it and those involved in it. But is that right? As Andrew said uh, a a few uh, moments ago, we're in the middle of a series, we're looking at what God expects of his people. And one of the key texts that uh, we've been using has been Romans 13, 9 and 10. It says, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. And when we take those verses, and as as we place them alongside those that we heard at the end of chapter 12, it would appear that the obvious answer is that Christians should be pacifists. And there are a lot of thoughtful Christians who are. And yet, as we turn the page, and as we come into chapter 13, and we read those verses at the beginning of chapter 13, we read that governments are responsible to God for bearing the sword. Is there a contradiction there? Does that mean war at any cost and for any reason? How can we put the bits of a jigsaw piece of, piece, uh, jigsaw of war together so that we can understand what our responsibility is as Christians? Well, this morning we're going to try and do that. And we're going to consider this subject under two headings. First, the realities of war. And then second, the responsibilities with respect to war. First off then, the realities. In the latter part of the uh, last century, some historians and academics got together and they uh, put together and produced some very thought-provoking statistics They started off like this. Since 3600 BC, 
there have only been 292 years without significant warfare. There have been 14,531 wars at the cost, humanly speaking, of an estimated 3.6 billion lives. Someone, as they left this morning, said that would be like wiping out China. Materially, the cost would have been that needed to create a belt of gold around the whole globe. A belt that's 10 metres thick and 97 miles wide. That is the cost of war. And when we see that it costs so much, you'd expect that we give it up. But we can't. And in these times of austerity, you'd expect that we'd slash the defence budget before the benefits budget. But to be honest, we haven't really. And there's a real danger as we grapple with these things that we can come to the wrong conclusion about war and about the Christian's place in war. Unless, that is, we understand the realities. And the first reality is this, that God made a perfect, peaceful world. We made war. If you turn right to the beginning of the Bible, you'll see that God created a perfect and peaceful world. If you read the first two chapters of Genesis, you'll see that God calls it good. And it's a world in which people lived in perfect, peaceful relationship with God, with one another, and with the world in which we live. Until, that is, we rebelled against God. We thought we knew better and we chose to live by our rules and not his. And Genesis 3 tells that terrible true story. You might say that we made war on God. The result? Well, we see it all around us. It's ruined relationships, our relationships with God, with, with, with each other and the world in which we live. And so from Genesis 3 onwards, there's violence, there's conflict, there's murder, and there's war. And you know, the awful truth is that we've only got ourselves to blame. It's down to our sinful hearts, yours and mine. At the outbreak of World War I, the uh, war ministry in London sent a coded message to its outposts around the world, and it read like this. War declared, arrest all enemy aliens. Well, almost immediately, one outpost in Africa responded like this. Have arrested four Germans, six Belgians, four French, three Austrians and an American. Please advise immediately who we are at war with. We may laugh, but it tells a true story, doesn't it, that... We need to know the facts about war if we're going to respond and act appropriately. God's word tells us that the root cause for war is our sinful hearts. If you uh, look, I'll read it out to you, but uh, James chapter 4 says these words. Uh, I've got it noted there. It says James 4 verse 12, but actually it's 4 verses 1 and 2. I'm sorry for my typing error. It says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, 
but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. That is the truth about the world in which we live and about you and me. And the truth is just as valid for two toddlers who would be sitting down here on the carpet fighting over a toy, as neighbours fighting over a fence, and nations side by side fighting over land or oil or mineral rights. War is the consequence of our rebellion against God. And our world isn't supposed to be like that. And when we see it, we should mourn over it. We should be pained by it. But we should also see where the blame lies. It is with us. And at the same time as all of that, uh, we shouldn't be surprised by it either. Uh, Jesus said that war is an inevitability. Speaking about his return in Matthew 24, verse 6 through to 8, Jesus says this, You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. War is an inevitability. In 1938, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned home from a conference with Adolf Hitler. And uh, as he came off the plane, he famously declared these words. He said, peace in our time. Yet within a year, German tanks rolled into Poland and for the second time in a century, the world was plunged once again into world war. War is terrible. It is a terrible tragedy, but an inevitable tragedy. It's all our fault. We made war on God and the result is our ongoing war with him and with one another. And that means that we should pray for peace where there is war. We should long for peace where there is war. We should make every effort for peace. Peace in our own lives, with our own relationships. That's where it's got to start for us. And yet at the same time, we must know the reality that we can never make lasting peace. This is the first reality God made a peaceful, perfect world. We made war. And the second reality is this, that God sometimes judges the world through war. You may be surprised by that, but it is true. If you were to take a quick look through the Bible, you'll see that's true in both Old Testament and in the New. In the Old Testament, there is a pattern of God being involved in war both in the decision to go to war and in the war itself. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, God forbids war. In Deuteronomy 20, by contrast, verses 1 to 4, he sanctions war. And then sometimes God fights with his people and for them. Deuteronomy 28, verse 7. And then at other times, he fights against them. Lamentations, chapter 2, 1 to 5. And then sometimes we can see that his sovereignty and authority extends even over other nations going to war who don't even acknowledge him. 
And you can see that sovereignty over other nations in Isaiah 45 and Amos 9. But that raises the question for us, doesn't it? Why does God do it? Is he merely just playing large-scale chess with us as his pieces? Or is there another answer? Well, again, the answer is very simple because it's always the same whether you look at Exodus 14, verse 4, or, or even Isaiah 45, verse 6. They tell us that God wages war in judgment and with the express purpose that people will know that he alone is God, that he is the Lord and there is no other, so that they acknowledge him and worship him. And when we see it like that, we can see that that is a reversal of Genesis 3, whereby people acknowledge him and worship him again. And it's not that God is a warmonger either. He doesn't delight in war. At Genesis 15, verse 16, if you look at that passage, don't bother looking now, but if you go home and have a look, you'll see that God deliberately says to his people that he's going to wait before he takes them against the Amorites. He says, until their sin has reached its full measure. God waits for the last moment before he brings his justice and judgment. Now it seems to me that uh, we all want and we need a God who hates evil. That's what we want. We want a God who will judge it. And we also desire a God who is patient. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. It's a picture, time and again, of what God will do in the future, of his final judgment of evil and sin. And that's a great reality, isn't it? It's a great relief that all of us who have faced injustice, all those that are facing justice even today, and will in the future... That justice will be done. And it's a great reminder also of God's grace that he patiently waits, allowing people to turn away from sin, to turn away from being at war with him and against him. And if you look in the Old Testament too, you'll see that because God judges through war, it's no surprise that the word used for killing in war is not the same as used for murder. They are not one and the same thing. When we move through to the New Testament, the picture is slightly different. God's people are not a nation with a land to defend or to extend, but a family spread out across the globe, growing and united by repentance, turning away from their sin and united by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's about acknowledgement of who God is and worship him. However, the second part of our passage from Romans uh, 13, Romans 13 verse 4, tells us yet again that governments still bear the sword. They still act as his servants and agents of wrath. And until the Lord Jesus returns in glory to judge us all in the final judgment, they are there to do that work for him. They play their part. And then when you look through the New Testament and see the way in which Jesus relates to soldiers, 
and the way in which God uses soldiers, it's a great reminder, isn't it, to us that Christians can be involved in warfare. Take what John the Baptist says to soldiers when he meets them in Luke 3, verse 14. He tells the soldiers to do two things. Not extort money and to be happy with their pay. Now, he could have said that to any of us, couldn't he? Most of us handle money at some stage. That's all he says to them. Jesus, in Luke 7, verse 9, what does he say to the centurion? He says, Nowhere in Israel have I found faith as great as this. And then in Acts 10, verse 2, God uses Cornelius, a Roman centurion, as a key part of his plan to reach the Gentiles. None of these military men was told to give up his job as the prostitute was. Every Christian that I have met when I was in the military and subsequently has taken joining the military seriously. You uh, may remember Luke Denby Hollis, who was a ministry trainee here last year. Today he is at Sandhurst, training as an officer cadet. A decision he didn't take lightly, but submitted to Scripture. Let me give you some words from Peter Hammond. He's a former soldier turned missionary in Africa. He says this, he says, As a theological student, I tackled the controversial subject of war and the Christian from both sides. I've been both a convinced pacifist and an active soldier. I have also sought as a missionary to apply the teachings of the Bible to the realities around me. I've walked along the unburied corpses of the killing fields of Mozambique. And I've cradled in my hands the dead and the dying. I've walked through the devastated towns in Angola, where not a living thing remained, only wrecked houses, decomposing corpses and revolutionary slogans. I've preached under mortar fire, been led handcuffed and blindfolded through the streets of Livingston and Lusaka. Most of all, I have spent days and years agonising and praying and studying over this subject of war and the Christian. From this perspective, he concludes, and I think some of his words are slightly more firmly put than one might, but I think they nevertheless cause us to think carefully. He says this, he says, pacifism finds its root in humanism. In common with humanism, pacifism shares a false idea of man. It sees man as basically good. Pacifism also has a false idea of God. It fails to understand the holiness and justice of God. It ignores the wrath of Almighty God against us. So the second reality, God sometimes judges the world through war and uses his people within that. And so today I think it's important that we give thanks to, those, to God for those who are in our armed forces and to give thanks to God for Christians who have been prepared to go to war, to pray for all their protection, but above all to pray for the Christian's witness to others who fight alongside them. Some who even today may face death and face Almighty God. I've never found 
a sailor more interested in God than when we have gone to war. So God sometimes judges the world through war and he uses people in the process. It reminds us that war is dreadful. It's a dreadful reality. And it also reminds us how truly awful God's final judgment will be because we cannot escape it. We may escape war, but we cannot escape him. And then the third reality, God brings peace and will end all wars. For all this talk of war and God being involved in war, it's easy to forget that war is God's strange work. Genesis 15 showed us that, that God does not rush to judge. Indeed, if you read Ezekiel 19, verse 23, God says this, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? This has been God's character since the beginning, since we first rebelled against him in Genesis 3. And throughout the Old Testament, you can see that he promises to put it right in and through the Christ, the Messiah. And so uh, in Isaiah, we can read both of the Messiah, but also of his work. Let me just read to you some words from Isaiah 9. You'll remember them because we often read them at Christmas. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And again, if you search through the scriptures, you'll see how the Prince of Peace is coming to do two things. Again, we can see both in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 4, 5 and 6. You can see God lays on the Prince of Peace, the iniquity of us all. The first thing the Prince of Peace comes to do is to reconcile us to God. To end war and give us peace. The second thing he does, you can see in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. That he will reconcile us to one another. Isaiah 2, verse 4 says this. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. We sang that in our first hymn, didn't we? Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That is what the promised Christ would do. And with Jesus' coming and his death on the cross, peace with God was and has been achieved. He laid down his life for his friends. There can be no greater love than that. Indeed, Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. And the result is... You can see it very clearly in Romans 5, verse 1. Let me just read that verse to you. We are justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the reality that Jesus came to bring. That with 
his coming, his death on the cross and resurrection, our greater need and greatest need of peace with God was made possible. And yet there is another peace that still needs to be worked out. That greater peace awaits its fulfilment when Jesus returns in glory. And yet even now as the gospel goes out, as the good news of Jesus is proclaimed around the world, people will turn from war against God and from war against each other. So in Ephesians 2, Jesus says that we are made one in him. But world peace will never come until Jesus returns. And that means that, well, if we start praying for world peace, we are praying against what God has revealed will happen. Yes, pray for peace in certain wars, but to pray for world peace, the right prayer is to pray, Lord Jesus, come. And of course, the last two chapters, if the first two chapters show us a perfect, peaceful world, the last two chapters do the same in God's new heaven and new earth. In the middle of the Falklands War in the 1980s, the parachute regiment mounted an assault on Goose Green, during which their commanding officer, Colonel H. Jones, was killed. When he heard the report that his commanding officer had uh, been uh, taken down, the second in command, Major Chris Keeble, a Christian man, took a few moments to pray. He asked God for wisdom about what he should do next. And in that relatively peaceful moment, he had the overwhelming sense that he should offer the Argentine forces peace. He summoned uh, two senior Argentine POWs. He gave them the message for their commanding officer. And they walked with a white flag to the Argentine command. If you think about that, that offer of peace was thoroughly undeserved. The Argentinians had invaded the Falklands. They had started the war, yet here was the one whom they had started the war against, offering peace. They accepted that offer, and so the Battle of Bruce Green, at least, was over. In the same way, God offers us peace with himself through Jesus Christ. And today would be a great day to take up that offer if you haven't already. Because it is the start of knowing peace with God, knowing him personally in this life, and when we meet him face to face, being able to do so with confidence that he will accept us. That peace has been made between us and him. I'm sure you, like me, long for peace. This is where it begins, by being at peace with God. But the second part of peace, peace between one another, will have to wait patiently, patiently and perseveringly until Jesus returns. So three realities of war. Now to our responsibilities. And I just want to spend a few moments uh, as we draw to a close now, just looking at uh, chapters 12 and 13 and to our responsibilities. And uh, the first responsibility is that of us as individuals. What is our individual responsibility? We can see this very clearly at the end of chapter 12. 
Verse 14, we're told to bless those who persecute us. Verse 16, to live in harmony with one another. Verse 17, not to repay evil with evil. Verse 18, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with everyone. Not just someone, not just those we love. And then verses 19 and 20, to leave room for God's wrath. This is how we should behave. As God's people, we are to be loving, selfless, forgiving and trusting in God for justice. And yet we know that even within our own families, let alone the church family, our local community, our place of work and our nation, we still often repay evil with evil. We do make war on other people with our words, in our hearts, with our actions. It's easy to love your friends, but loving your enemies and praying for them, that is far harder, but we are called to do that too. I remember as a young naval officer, uh, it was during the final years of the Cold War, and uh, I became a Christian two years into the Navy. And these verses here challenged me to join a prayer group for the Soviet Union and for Eastern Europe. And as a young Christian then to, over the next year or two, to see the Iron Curtain come down, the Berlin Wall broken through. That was both great joy and a great reminder that we have a great God who does want to bring peace. So for us as individuals, our responsibility is not to take matters into our own hands, but to love our neighbours, chapter 13, verse 9, and to ensure that we do them no harm. That's our individual responsibility. Secondly, It's also about acknowledging and allowing God to fulfill his responsibility. He alone is the supreme judge. Verse 19 of chapter 12. It's mine to avenge. I will repay. Therefore do not, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. And then just over the page we see how God does that. Over the page... Chapter 13, verse 1, we're told that God establishes authorities. There are no authorities that God has not established. And verse 4, that they are those who bear the sword. They are his servant and agents of wrath. Of course, no government is perfect. And sometimes governments do not bring justice where they should. They either leave wrong unpunished or they punish inappropriately. And when that happens, we must take that to God, the God of all justice. It's a great comfort, isn't it, to know that our loving Heavenly Father, the God of all justice, will bring justice for the Osama bin Ladens of this world and to the other world leaders and other people who bring war. That those who may escape trial at the Hague for war crimes, they will be judged by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's going to be no need to worry about miscarriages of justice before God. No need for retrials. No fear of inappropriate acquittals. The perfect judge knows all things. And we must trust him and then trust ourselves to him as we trust in his justice. That is God's responsibility. And then finally, the responsibility of governments. 
They are God's servants, verse 4. They bear the sword. But they do not do so without just cause or in inappropriate ways. We know that as a nation, don't we? It's great that our nation calls our government to account that there is going to be, or there is, an inquiry into the Iraq war. It is important for us to know that our soldiers cannot act in ways that are outside their rules of engagement, that they will be held to account for every shot they fire. It's clear that as a nation and as a world, we demand some justice for fighting wars. Uh, Yesterday in the Times, uh, a previous commander of our own forces in Iraq said this, uh, Lieutenant General Sir Richard Fry. He acknowledges that today there is a disconnect between what the government think, what we as the public think, and what the armed forces think. And he says this, We've had a consensus about the use of force for, the most, for most of the last 200 years. When we went to war, it was assumed we would obey certain conditions. It would be rules-based. We would be likely to prevail, and the outcome would be largely beneficial. With Napoleon and the two world wars of the 20th century, those conditions were largely met. And then he raises a question. In 2003, with the Iraq invasion, the consensus, the consensus between the government, people and armed forces was broken and has yet to be reconstructed. He muses that maybe it won't be. So what has God's word got to say on just war. If you turn over the page to the back of your sheets, you can see that I have listed a number of uh, conditions both for going to war and also for acting in war. Most of these have been part and parcel of the Christian church for many years. Indeed, they've been built up first by Aquinas and then by others over centuries are often not quoted with biblical background, and I've tried to do that on the back. Uh, There's not enough time for us to look through them now, but can I encourage you to have a look through them when you go home? And when you do so, can I suggest that you don't use these to judge our government and to judge our soldiers? Can I encourage you first and foremost to pray for them, to pray that our government will make just Uh, uh, decisions about going to war. To pray for our armed forces that they will fight in just ways. And of course, how important is that? Only this week we've heard of allegations of waterboarding and of torture at Abu Ghraib. We've heard too of uh, President Bush's comments about torture and the use of it. Let's also use these things to pray for civilians that are caught up in war and the families and friends of those who die in war. So that's the first thing can I encourage you to do, to pray. Second thing, it may well be that you're encouraged to write to MPs and to the government to to encourage them to act justly. Do bear in mind, verse 2 of chapter 13, that we must do so appropriately. And then let's pray for those, uh, for Christians to be raised up for government and for service in the armed forces. How great it is to have godly men and women 
in those positions of responsibility to share the gospel, but also, but also to speak with integrity. In all this, we must be careful that we do not sit in judgment over them. Because so often we don't know the full facts. So, some criteria for a just war to be fought and how it's to be fought. Let me now close. Today is a day for us to remember. For us to remember not to revel in war. To remember those who have died and those who continue to lay their lives on the line for you and me to enjoy the peace and freedom that we have here this morning. And to remember that Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, has come into the world to give us peace. Peace with God, ultimately, and peace with one another. But more than that, today is also a day for us to respond. To heed the realities of war, to see our culpability for war, because we made war on God. To see the reality that God does use war to judge, but also to see the reality of God's plan for peace, to end war between us and him and us and each other. So not only to heed, but also to live up to our responsibilities. That we would first and foremost turn to God in Christ and ensure that we are at peace with him. And if you haven't done so, can I urge you to do that? Second, to live out our calling to peace as individuals. Third, to trust God to bring his justice now and then finally when Jesus returns. And then finally to pray for our government and to pray for those in our armed forces. Let us pray.